It is my pleasure to introduce to you this morning Rick Lentz, who is the Vice President of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Some of you were not in perhaps a moment ago when I mentioned this. Rick is in town this weekend because Gordon-Conwell's Jacksonville campus, of which our own Ryan Reeves is the dean of that campus, uh, had their commencement yesterday, and we bartered a deal in which I would go preach for them on Saturday, and, uh, and Rick would come preach for me today. And so it's our privilege to have him with us. Rick has served at Gordon-Conwell 25 years as a professor of systematic theology, and the last five years he served in the role of vice president. He and his wife, Anne, have three adult children. They all live in Boston now, um, and uh, he said he never thought that would be home. But Rick is a pastor in our denomination. He has been a part of several different church plants in the Boston area, and he's active in the church. He has a heart, and you can find it in his book if you want a good read, The Fabric of Theology, for how we work with confessional history and how we also continue to hold the Bible together today and how we integrate all that in the church. So he loves the church, and it's a pleasure to share him with you today. Rick, we'll invite you up. Can I borrow that Bible? <laughs> I'm never sure which version churches use when I enter, so I always just pick up a pew Bible, and um, so that's uh, my reason for stealing this from Chuck this morning. Turn with me, uh, if you would, or maybe look up on the screen. Uh, we're in Ephesians 4, and I want to just read uh, aloud uh, the text uh, for this morning reading from Ephesians 4, uh, verses 1 to 16. The Apostle Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. 
Pray with me. Oh God, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see you more clearly and hearts that more fully embrace your good news in Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Um, it is a joy and a delight to be here. Winter is just over in Boston. Um, and so this uh, lovely warm weather has been a treat uh, this weekend. I suspect uh, you're looking towards a long, hot uh, summer. Um, summers in Boston are very different. Uh, and uh, we recognize that we live in the same country, but virtually on different planets, uh, New England and North Florida. I got a taste of Jacksonville yesterday driving back uh, from the beach, uh, two and a half hours uh, to go about 15 minutes. Uh, this uh, strange thing that Chuck alluded to, the TPC, uh, got stuck in the middle of uh, evidently. Uh, but needless to say, it is still good to be with you. Uh, we turn to this uh, remarkable passage in Ephesians 4. Paul is making a shift at this point in his argument. Uh, it's really, if you read this passage, all about the unity of the church. Uh, not so much about its diversity, but I'm going to tackle it upside down, if I might. For it, it strikes me that fundamental, or at least one of the fundamental dilemmas we face in a time like ours, is how do we deal with our differences? Which is the other side of the question about unity. Surely, uh, it's not an exaggeration to say that diversity is part of the air that we breathe in a culture like ours. We privilege certain kinds of diversity, for sure, over other kinds of diversity. But diversity is one of those taken-for-granted realities that pokes us in the eye at every turn. The millennials, those roughly 17 to 25-year-olds uh, are very uncomfortable when everybody around them looks the same. They have grown up in a culture that prizes difference and diversity. In the middle of a political season like ours, we're conscious of the great divides uh, across our political spectrums. We're also conscious of the differences uh, in our educational systems, in our sports loyalties. Uh, we have students at Gordon-Conwell from Texas, quite a few of them actually, and you would think they are mostly alike, except some are from UT and some from A&M, and they do not think they belong to the same state. I suspect there's probably similar sports loyalties here in Florida. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. One of the great ironies of our celebration of diversity in a culture like ours is that we actually migrate to hang out with people mostly like us. Diversity is kept at arm's length. We experience day-to-day -day life in relatively homogenous communities. In New England, you know the difference between a Red Sox fan and a Yankee fan. 
and they don't think kindly of each other. It's present in talk radio, it's present in our water cooler conversations. We celebrate difference except when it gets too close. These safe havens of unity often protect us from difference. Uh, these homogenous communities in some ways are a reaction against overwhelming diversities. For diversity is costly when it finds its locus in disagreement. Differences of taste, for example, may not seem very important until such times as we have to decide what the family will eat for dinner together. Differences of fashion seem harmless enough in most cases until such time as the family must take their Christmas photograph together. Different habits of cleanliness may not seem very significant until husband and wife have to learn to live with each other. Differences make a difference when they matter. In other words, there are different kinds of differences. Obvious enough, isn't it? But the language of our time would suggest that all our differences matter. Here we turn then to the Apostle Paul, to Ephesians 4, to think out loud about difference in the context of unity. You've been uh, preaching through uh, the book of Ephesians. It's the most majestic of all of Paul's letters. This soaring rhetoric that is captivating in the first three chapters. Uh, it tells this grand story of salvation from the beginning, of God's narrative arc of salvation. He winds the whole thing together. There's no way you can do justice to Paul's argument in a series of sermons. You know, in the Christian church, we have this really odd uh, habit. We read the Bible over and over and over again. You know, most of us pick up a novel and we read it once. And if it's a really interesting novel, maybe twice. But this book of ours called the Bible, we read it again and again and again. And the reason is, is because it's so thick and so rich and so deep, not a single reading could capture all that's here. And any preacher that faces Ephesians, their knees begin to shake. How could you possibly do justice to the argument here? And yet, uh, yet we, we must, we must try. And so dive in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mostly concentrate simply on one verse in this grand story that Paul is unfolding for us from Ephesians 1 uh, through the end of the book. Uh, this is a, a turning point in the argument. 
having laid out the grand story of God's plan, Ephesians 1 to 3, now he begins chapter 4 by saying, live it out. Illustrate the plan of God in your life. Reflect God's character in your character. Mimic who God is in your callings. He begins reminding us that he's in prison. He's a prisoner of the Lord, for sure, but he's also in prison as he writes this book. This remarkably exalted account of God's work is written from the depths of prison. There's a little bit of irony here. Uh, I suspect if you and I were in Paul's shoes, uh, we'd be complaining to God. Uh, oh Lord, how long? Uh, why me, oh Lord? Couldn't you pick on somebody else? But here, Paul takes the occasion of his imprisonment to, to kind of stick it to the rest of us to make the case we are to live out this grand story wherever we are. And in fact, Paul's imprisonment is the very illustration of the story. So live, he says, the calling worthy of the God who has given it to you. Live out this good news. Live out this great story as one who is called, one whose vocation is to reflect God in all of life. You know, the language of vocation or calling we often associate with your job. And there's a sense in which that's part of what's at stake here. Whether you're a teacher, a homemaker, a financial analyst, you're to live out the good news in that place. By teaching, by caring for your family, by the way you deal with money. Your job belongs to God. But it's not so much what you do at work, but who you are at work. And I think many of us more nearly think of living out the gospel when we gather here at church. But the rub comes not when we are together, although sometimes when we're together we like to argue, but mostly the rub comes when we are in the world, at work, dealing with those day-to-day -day details of our ordinary vocations. And so what does it mean to live a life worthy of that calling in that place God has put you? What does it mean to teach as unto the Lord? What does it mean to treat finances as unto the Lord? That's what Paul is asking us to do, to honor God at work. 
at all uh, of our lives. You know, we have a hard time thinking about honor. It's an ancient concept uh, in many ways culturally narrated with great differences depending on which culture. When we enter into another's house, rare is uh, the North American that takes their shoes off as a sign of honor. In Asian cultures, it's expected that you would do that, that you would honor your host in this fashion. We have different ways to honor. But in an informal culture like ours, honoring is almost counterintuitive. It is hard to think about what it means to honor others, let alone to honor God. I have a dear friend, Chris. Um, Chris is a data programmer, not by any sense the most interesting job I could think of, but Chris's loves uh, data programming. For he thinks of this massive amount of uh, programming language, uh, computer language, as a matter of figuring out God's great design of the universe. And for him, this is a reflection of the creator. He sees it in his work every day. Uh, when I talk to Chris about what it means to reflect God as a data programmer, he talks almost as an artist talks about a great portrait that is drawn to reflect uh, the landscape or the person in front of them. To, to program for him was to see God's design uh, in the computer language. How many of you can see God in that way in your work? That's what it means, I think, to honor God in all of life, in all of our calling. Uh, Paul turns now then to, um, to put the screws in, if I might, to each of us, to talk not about the tasks connected with our calling, but the character of our calling. And he draws attention, and here we will land this morning. He calls us to lives of humility, of gentleness, of patience, and of forbearance. Humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. Let me tackle each in turn, and then put the picture back together, uh, as Paul does, uh, all too briefly. Humility. If you try to let people know that you're humble, you're not being humble. Humility is one of the great ironic virtues. The more you think you have it, the less you have it. The more you try to exercise it, the less 
it would be part of your character. In, in Paul's world, it was actually a derogatory term. It was something you accused others of. Uh, it was a, a sense of groveling uh, for help from others. Uh, the, the ancient Greek ideal of human life excluded the possibility of lowering oneself. And Jesus here turns that world upside down, that one of the highest virtues of those who follow Jesus is humility. In Christ, humility becomes a virtue, a defining virtue. Paul says in the letter to the Philippians that Jesus was actually equal with God and yet humbled himself, even to the point of death. At the heart of the faith we confess is this enormous act of humility. Jesus leaves his eternal home, enters into our lives, and dies this horrific death. Who in the world would have done what Jesus did for those who hated him? Humility. Many of us, I think, do not lie awake at night thinking about how we could express humility. We think rather about becoming more important than we are. We dream maybe of discovering some famous new drug or some famous new technology that will make us rich and famous. We aspire to be greater than we are. We do not aspire to be a servant. Um, for the last, what's it been, four or five years, six years of Downton Abbey, we have followed uh, two worlds, uh, the upstairs and the downstairs. And in many traditional cultures, there is a great division between those classes of people. Those who serve and those who are served. And rare is the occasion that there's actual intersection of the lives between those two classes. And what was so fascinating, for sure part of the reason of this phenomena of Downton Abbey was that we discovered the servants also have lives. And we entered in and saw life from the downstairs. America is a culture in some ways that pretends not to have classes, pretends that there isn't a difference between the haves and the have-nots. And we live with the presumption that we are just ordinary people. But deep down in our souls, we would still like to be better than others. 
And our primary purpose is not to serve, but to increasingly be served. There are social ladders to climb. There are ladders to climb in our careers. I live uh, in the academic world, and a friend of mine told me the other day an interesting statistic about the vocation of professors, that 95% of all those who teach think of themselves as above average. That means we don't have any average teachers. They think of themselves better than others. Now, I don't know what the percentages are for the doctors or lawyers or uh, uh, others, but that's very American, isn't it? Uh, it says something about our yearning uh, to be above others. Here, the first virtue uh, that we who follow Jesus is actually to think of ourselves lower than others, that our calling is to serve others. Our calling is to think about the common good before our own good. Humility. Paul then turns to gentleness. Again, in the ancient world, this was not exactly an exemplary characteristic. To be gentle meant you did not defend yourself. To be gentle meant that you could be run over by the powers. Strength uh, was the opposite of gentleness. But here, for Paul, gentleness is how we are to deal with those that we disagree with. Gentleness is part of the glue of our unity. Gentleness is the opposite of asserting our rights and privileges. A commentator put it this way, the spirit of the one who is gentle is so absorbed in seeking a worthy goal for the common good that they refuse to be deflected by slights and injuries and insults directed at themselves. Indeed, to be misdirected by any personal considerations. To be gentle towards others is to remove those insults that have come your way. To treat others uh, with care, uh, with gentleness. It's what parents do in the face of rebellious children. It's what friends do with those who are going through a hard time. To say a gentle word is to look out for the well-being of others. Rare is the person who is persuaded by another without gentleness somewhere being manifest along the way. 
I grew up in a nominally Christian home. We would go to Christmas and Easter services uh, sometimes. Uh, and somewhere during high school, a friend invited me to a summer camp. I thought it was a sports camp. It, it happened to be a place where a lot of Christians hung out, unbeknownst to me. And the very first night of summer camp, we saw, dating myself here, a movie called A Thief in the Night. And that night I was scared into heaven. Right? It was all about the rapture and uh, being left behind and uh, about hell and judgment. Uh, and I, I couldn't sleep that night. And I thought, what a dreadful way to be introduced to the good news of salvation. But sometimes that's how we face the world, isn't it? That's how we face our disagreements. Not with gentleness, but with fear. Now, I don't suspect that Christianity would have lasted in my life if it had been simply motivated by fear. Eventually, it would have uh, found its uh, exit uh, from my life. But there were, there were friends that came alongside me uh, in gentleness that I remember to this day. And you can remember those friends in your own life, the ones who spoke words of counsel with gentleness to you. Patience. God is patient with us. We are to be patient with each other. Have you ever tried to be patient? It's hard. Like humility, the more you work at patience, the less you will have of it. Patience it is a gift of the Spirit. Patience uh, is extraordinary in its impact on others. When we are slow to anger, others will notice. But almost deep down in our hearts, we want to avenge the wrongs against us. Surrounding our lives in a time like this, patience is not prized. The social media asks us to respond quickly and defensively. Technology speeds up our lives in extraordinary ways. The demands at work, for most of you, are a heavy burden that require not patience, but speed. It's hard for us to slow down. It feels almost uncomfortable for us, the speed with which most of our lives are carried on.
for those of you with early teenagers, think about how busy life is for you. Going from one event to another event, lest they miss something uh, which would be just uh, horrific. And we teach these habits by our own actions. We are people moving so fast, we can't slow down. The attention span uh, we have watching television uh, or movies means that the camera angle must change every 1.7 seconds. There must be motion uh, so fast that it keeps our attention. In every way, we are a, a people moving so fast, we don't recognize how fast we are going. When everybody else is going down I-95 at 80 miles an hour, uh, and there I probably am speaking as a New Englander because going 80, you have to be in the slow lane uh, in New England. But if everybody's going the same speed, you don't recognize your own speed. So it is in life. Patience. And finally then, forbearance. Bearing with one another, as Paul says, in love. This is the practical outworking of patience. Bearing with one another's weaknesses. Not ceasing to love others when they don't love you. Ours is a, a time that celebrates tolerance, not forbearance. And there's a huge difference between tolerating our differences and bearing with others who disagree with you. Forbearance means that you're actually seeking the well-being of the other to whom you are in disagreement. Tolerance is simply allowing those differences to exist. Tolerance is cheap. Forbearance is costly. There's no place more needy of forbearance than our families. Bearing with your spouse, bearing with your children in love. When you live with them day to day, you recognize how hard that is. We have almost the expectation that somewhere along the line, our children are supposed to rebel. And so they do. And the question is, what will you do as parents? Will you bear with them in love? It is difficult. And yet here Paul argues that unity will not be achieved without it. Humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. These are the means God uses to help us deal with our differences. 
It's a strange set of virtues. And it's strange because they reflect God. And here I close. The rest of this passage is all about God. God is patient and gentle. God is uh, forbearing with us in love. God is reflected in our deepest yearnings. The passage unfolds as a, as a Trinitarian uh, argument that we are to deal with each other's differences, we are to be united with one another as a reflection of the God who is three and one. A God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, a God of whom the Son says, not my will, O Father, but yours. The, the God who is the Holy Spirit that says, I will glorify the Son. We worship a God who is deeply interwoven in these kinds of relationships. The Trinity is one of those great mysteries of the Christian faith. Maybe the most mysterious of all aspects of our confession. I mean, think about it. God is three, three persons, and yet there is not three gods. There is one God in three persons. The absolute perfect blend of unity and diversity. And how does the Son deal with the differences between the Father and the Spirit? He submits his will to the good of others. And, and the Holy Spirit, I mean, I mean, if I were the Holy Spirit, and I didn't show up till relatively late in redemptive history, I'd be a little ticked off, for after all, I'm God. Don't I get a place in the show earlier? And yet, it's the Spirit's greatest desire to manifest the Son in all his glory. The God we worship is hardwired into us. We will not be satisfied deep down in our souls until and unless we reflect the God who made us. And yet, how many obstacles there are in our lives to doing just that? David Brooks has written a wonderful uh, uh, book called The Road to Character. If you haven't read it, you must. Uh, the first chapter is worth the price of the book alone. Uh, David Brooks is the uh, uh, political commentator of the New York Times, uh, and he's asked himself the question, how do people develop character? What's the road to developing the character that we prize? And early on, he divides or distinguishes between the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. The, the resume virtues are those characteristics of your life that you put on a resume to sell yourself. 
The eulogy virtues are those things people say at your funeral. Deep down, we know, we just know, the eulogy virtues are far more important. How people remember you as gentle or patience or kind. I'm not asking that you yearn for your funeral, but how will people remember you? Brooks goes on to say, most of us spend a lot of more mental energy building our resume than we do our eulogy. I think that's exactly right. Paul calls us to the eulogy virtues, to patience, to gentleness, to humility, to forbearance. Live lives worthy of the God you worship. Amen and amen. Oh Lord, our God, we ask that you would deep down in our hearts instill your character in us, not because we have earned your favor, but because your favor is rooted in humility and gentleness and patience. By your mercy, you have worked in us. Work it out more fully, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.